0: Desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Seated. <clears throat> well, Jesus, we've sung about it really all morning long. He, he came and did something extremely. Precious. Extremely special. He, he, he died in our place for our sin. He, he took and, and became unacceptable so that we could be made acceptable. He became an outcast so that you and I could be brought into the presence of God. He took on our curse so that we could have His blessing. He died so that we might live. In In, in I don't know, I think it was Luther that actually coined this phrase, but he called this the great exchange. Jesus taking what we deserve, taking what should be ours and placing what is His, what belongs to Him, His rights, His inheritance, the blessings of knowing and walking in relationship with our Creator. He took that from Himself and put it on us and took from us our sin and our curse and our shame. That's really the, the whole point of what Paul has been proclaiming throughout this, this first half or the first half of Ephesians. You see, it's, it's like this. It's like Jesus standing in a courtroom. Well, let, me, let me step back just a second. You're standing in a courtroom. You are, are standing there, the, the person who is the accused. All the evidence has been laid out. All of the, all of the arguments have been made, and you are obviously guilty. I am obviously guilty. We stand in a place that deserves condemnation. But before the judgment is made, before the judgment, before the the gavel hits the hits the pad, before the before the words guilty are proclaimed against you, Jesus stands in your place and he proclaims out loud for all to hear. He is not a sinner. She is not a sinner. I am. That's what he did for you. He is innocent. She is innocent. The sentence that is theirs comes to me. I am the guilty one. He has stood in a place and called you justified. He has called you righteous. He has called you holy. That's justification. It's a a once for all thing. Jesus did this. And on the cross, his last, his last phrase, the, the last thing that he said is, it is finished. The work was done. There's nothing more to do. He applies it to you. He gives it to you. And all you can do is stand in faith and accept it. You have been justified. You see this passage that Paul, he, that last verse, he emphasizes you've been made new, that you've been made in the likeness of God, that you are now righteous and holy, truly righteous and truly holy. It's not a form of righteousness. It's not some fake righteousness. It's not the the efforts of our life on display. It is a true righteousness that that is the truth about us from the very depths of who we are to who we are on the outside. All the way through and through. When we are cut open, Jesus doesn't see righteousness on the outside and, and filth on the inside. You are righteous through and through. You are holy through and through. This is what He did. And that's what Paul's been proclaiming. The whole first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul was stating this. He wasn't wasn't asking our opinion on it. He wasn't coming to us and saying, I think this this is what's happened. He was saying, by God, by the power of God, through the work of Jesus Christ, and now revealed to us in the Holy Spirit, this is what happened. You and I are justified. But we all know, Christians, we all know that though we're justified, we don't always act as such, do we? Is there a person in this room that doesn't still struggle with sin? Is there a man in this room, in this culture we live, that doesn't deal with lust? Is there a wife in this room who at times doesn't feel like her husband emotionally connects to her and finds a connection with another man? Is there is there a person in this room who doesn't long and look for satisfaction and joy in many other places other than in our Creator and Savior Jesus Christ? It's, it's through and through us. But what what's going on? Jesus made us truly righteous. Jesus made us truly holy. How can it be now that we are in this in this place where we are this? While we are truly righteous, but at the same time struggling with sin. see there's another perspective here. there's another piece of the puzzle, and that's really what Paul's point has been in this second half of Ephesians as he now calls us to act like Christians. There's another piece. See on the one hand, God has done this, he's called you this, he's given you a new name, you're no longer saint, you are or you're no longer sinner, but you are saint, but on the other hand, Your justification in Christ brings you into a process of purification by Christ. You see, there's a reality of what Jesus is about doing, what the Spirit of God is about doing in your life, is making a reality in all of your life about what He's done to you on the inside of your life. He's purifying you from the inside out. He's making you new, not just in name, but in reality. As Christians, we're not responsible for our salvation. We didn't get here on our own. The point of this passage, the point of this last half of Ephesians is that it is now our responsibility to act like we are saved. It's our responsibility to choose to do the right thing. And Paul, Paul makes it very clear here. It's exactly what he's emphasizing. It's exactly what he's teaching. And listen, again, he's not asking... as as if it's an opinion. He's not saying this as if it could be. In verse 17, he commands it with the authority that's in him, in God. He says, "I, I testify to you before the Lord. I urge you to this before Jesus. I'm saying this with his full authority. Do not act like the Gentiles act. Now in our politically correct day and age if we called somebody by a name like that like gentile like oh, I walked up to you and said hey gentile you know you might be offended it's not like that he's not a racist he's not hateful he's he's simply helping us see the distinction the gentiles were people who weren't a covenant people of god they didn't belong to him they didn't have an agreement with him they didn't live in contract with him He's saying to to all of us who are are, are believers, who are Christians, who who have trusted in Jesus Christ, he's saying to us, don't act like they act. So the Christian's life should be a distinct life. There should be a difference. It's unfortunate that we live in a day and age in which the the statistics would tell you that the church and I'm not talking about just our church, I'm talking about the church at large, the the American church, the North American church is beginning to look and has been being made to look more and more and more like the culture around us. We get divorced just as much as non-Christians do. Just as many Christian church-going people, Jesus-professing people, are looking at pornography as there are people in the world that aren't believing, aren't professing Christians. They, they They still, it's the same. We are we are um, uh, across the board. I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not picking just on you. It's just the reality of where we're at. There's just as many of us pursuing an American dream rather than Christ's plan for us. There's, there's just as many of us trying to build our own kingdom to advance our own purposes and live for our own mission as there is in the world living for their own. It's unfortunate that people can come to church and listen, don't, don't hear me telling you that we're not going to be gracious and loving and accepting and try to help you the best we can. But we live in a day and age when people can come to church and they can wear their sin as if in the name of relevance or being a cool Christian or just trying to be accepted in the world so that we can share Jesus. Paul says that's unacceptable. unacceptable. Listen, if you're here today and and you're not a believer in Jesus, this this isn't for you. I'm not calling you to a new way of life. I want to call you to your Savior. To the Savior. I I want you to hear that Jesus, and I want you you to hear the songs that we sang, and I want you to hear the truth that's been proclaimed. Jesus does this work in us. We didn't get here by ourselves. And I'm not calling you to a new way of life. I'm calling you, non-believer, non-Christian, I'm calling you to the Savior who will make you new. But Christian, if you are a professing believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted that He has saved you, I am calling you like Paul to live in this way. You can call me legalistic if you want. You can call me uh, old-fashioned if you want. I'm just going to tell you I'm biblical. I'm not perfect. This is what I'm striving for. And this is what I'm calling you, Christian brother and sister, to strive for with me. Let's just look at it. Let's explore it. Let's understand what he's saying. He tells us in verse 17, he says, don't act like the Gentiles do. And he, he refers to the futility of their, of their thought, of their mind. We need to be careful here. Paul's not calling non-Christians stupid or he's not he's not uh, insulting them but he's trying to demonstrate that in outside of Christ there's a futility to our efforts it's not saying it's not he's he's not saying that they can't accomplish things certainly they can even in Paul's day and age as a roman citizen which Paul was roman citizens enjoyed and and people actually in the roman empire enjoyed many of the technological advances that the roman people brought about Bridges that didn't fall down when you put heavy loads on them. They did that. Roads that connected their empire, that they were able to transport goods from one place to another. You know who came up with that? They did, the Romans. Ungodly Roman people. Indoor plumbing. You know who we have to thank for that? Romans. They would pipe water into places that didn't have water. They would run it in aqueducts, in these long aqueducts. They'd, they'd get it up out of rivers and they'd run it through these big, huge aqueducts that would run for miles and miles to places that didn't have water. I get to go to the bathroom inside because of, their, of, of where it started with them. You get to enjoy that. That's a good thing they come up with that so we're not we don't we can't assume that Paul's looking at these people and saying oh gentiles people who don't believe who who haven't followed Jesus that they are, they are incapable no they're they're plenty capable but there's a futility to their effort see because indoor plumbing isn't the answer for us is it it might satisfy us for a moment but it doesn't please us for all time doesn't Roads, man, they make things convenient. Sure, it is easier to drive on a road than it is in the in the fields, you know. I mean, just imagine what it would be like if we'd come up with cars but nobody would ever thought of roads. Well, who, we'd never get to go 70, 80 miles an hour. Right? And as much fun as it is to go 70 or 80 miles an hour, maybe even faster. You don't have to admit that to me if you don't want. As much fun as that is, there's no real satisfaction there. Right? It pleases for a moment, but it doesn't bring lasting satisfaction. There's a futility to this effort because you're always looking for more. You're always having to be forced to go someplace else and look for something else. I could tell you, I'd be happy if I had a million dollars in the bank. And I think I'd be happy if I had a million dollars in the bank. And you think, well, oh, you get a million dollars in the bank, you just kick back and relax and enjoy life at that point, right? No. What what we've seen over and over again. What's proven. You look at people in Hollywood who have a bunch of money, who have a bunch of stuff. Do they look happy? No. The the predominant pattern is is that they're not. They're not satisfied. They don't know joy. They don't know peace. They get the million dollars and there's something else they want. There's something else they decide will make them happy. Or... It could be that they get the million dollars, but they have to maintain the million dollars. So now I just gotta work my butt off to keep this million dollars or else I won't be happy. But wait, I'm not happy trying to maintain this million dollars. There's a futility, this constant cycle, this constant effort, and constantly we're finding that we're not satisfied. We don't have the basic, the basic desires of our lives being fulfilled. We don't know acceptance. We don't know peace. We don't know joy. Not really. Not completely. We're constantly having to place the next thing in line and say, oh, if I can, if I can achieve this, if I can do this, that's futility. That's futile effort. Never achieving the goal. He says that their, their, their efforts are futile, that their mind is futile, that they're constantly thinking. And then he says they're hard hearted. Hmm. Doesn't mean that they're not compassionate. I know plenty of non-Christian people who have compassion. But if you look at this, if you look at this in context, what you begin to see is that Paul is talking not about personalities. He's talking about resistance to truth. See, God has presented a truth. He's demonstrated to people what the truth is. In Romans 1, it tells us that the world proclaims or the world screams that there's a Creator and that God has made Himself known creation, or, or not just the creation, but, but mankind, has rejected that truth. See, we, we, we don't just, we're not just resilient to it, we reject it. We harden ourselves against it. I'll give you an example. Just this week, I was watching, excuse me, I was watching a, a debate between Ken Ham, who is with Answers in Genesis, and uh, it's a it's an organization that defends the young earth creationist perspective that the earth was literally create, created in a literal six days. And. And this biblical perspective that God created it. And anyway, and that from that comes a lot of other stuff. Anyway, so he that's where he stands. He debated a guy named Bill Nye, the science guy. You guys are all heard of him, right? I mean, love Bill Nye. And the perspective was this. The debate was over this question. Is the creation model? Let me let me read it because I'm gonna I'm gonna mess it up. See where my notes are at. Is creation A viable model of origins in today's modern scientific era. So, looking at creation, does it stand up to today's modern scientific perspectives? Will it stand the test of science? And I can't, I I can tell you, go, you can see it on YouTube if you want to watch it. It's about two hours long. I'm not going to go into it here. It's a good debate. Uh, I thought, Bill Nye, though, over and over and over made it, made a point, made one point. Well, he tried to make several, but he made one repeatedly. And he'd look right in the camera as this was happening. He told he, he he said the reason he came to do this debate, and he reiterated this idea, is that if we don't do away with the young earth creationist idea that we are hindering ourselves as a people. In fact, he's he went so far as to say to voters and taxpayers if we don't get rid of the young earth creationist debate. We are threatening our position, our nation's position, as a leader in the world. He is blaming all of the problems we have and the reasons why we're not advancing in science and technology the way we used to. He's laying it all on this perspective that God created the world in six days. That was his point over and over and over. Go back and watch the debate, you'll hear it. And he did this in spite of the fact that repeatedly, Ken Ham listed young earth creationist scientists who have made mi- major contributions to technology and innovation today. Science and technology today. You see, there is a truth that Ken Ham presented. Creationist, young earth creationist scientists are just as capable scientists as uh, those who deny God's creation. As God's... God creating as as a source of origin. They're just as capable. They're just as big a part of what's going on in science and technology today. He even listed people who in our past, who who all of science today looks at and says, hey, they were young earth creationists. They were young earth creationists. The reason we know that we don't float away because we have gravity comes from a man who was a young earth creationist. You see, the idea is that... We have always been there. And there's this truth presented. But you know what Bill Nye did? He ignored Ken Ham's point. He hardened himself against it. This is the hard heart. He he denied it in spite of the evidence, in spite of everything that's looking him in the face. He says, that's not true. In fact, my truth is true. That's hard hearted. You see, there's a darkness there, and that's what Paul refers to in these verses. There's a darkness and a, an inability to understand it. You, you can't see what's in front of you. It's like you're in a dark room trying to figure out what you're holding in your hand. Sure, there's evidence. Sure, there's things you can look at. Sure, there's things that you can determine. But you don't know if you got that leg of an elephant or a tree trunk sometimes. You see, the idea is that there's just an inability to totally understand because you deny and reject the truth. This is this is the hard heart, heartedness that, that Paul's referring to. He says that they become callous. Listen and and, and hear the way this says it. It's I, I think it's important because there's a reality we're called to be eager for things. But he says it here. He says that there is a greediness. Where's it at? Let me pull it back up. He he, he says there's a a greediness so that we may no longer be children. No, it's too far up. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance ignorance in them. Ignorance is not stupidity. It's a lack of understanding. It's a lack of knowledge due to their hardness of heart. So they rejected truth. They rejected what's in front of them. and, And without that truth, it becomes impossible to truly interpret what's in front of you. He says they have become callous. You know what a callous is, right? You, you probably have them on your hand or, or maybe on your foot. I know ladies are always getting their feet, feet rubbed, and they like those little things that sand the callus off to make your feet soft. I, I don't know why. I mean, there shouldn't be that many people touching your feet. So I don't know that it's a big deal. But the callus, it happens for a reason, right? I mean, because you're, you're constant, there's constant friction there. And so your skin toughens up. Your skin toughens up, and so it doesn't irritate. Like when you're walking around, instead of getting a blister, your callus protects your foot. It's actually a good thing. Before we had shoes, and I'm telling you, if you go into a third world country, you find people with some pretty gnarly feet because they're calloused. And they need those calluses because it keeps their feet safe, you know. I mean, it, it keeps them from being hurt all the time. So, so so that's that's what it's about. There's a sense, this idea that, that, that in our lostness and without Christ, without Jesus, we become callous. We give ourselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul earlier in the passage, earlier in the chapter, says Christian, be eager. Be eager to pursue the peace and the the bond of peace that's in Christ. Be eager for that. Be zealous for it. But he's saying outside of Christ, outside of Christ, the natural bent of people is to walk away from that, to to pursue impurity. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a believer, I'm I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm not trying to say anything against you. What I'm trying to tell you, what I'm trying to plead with you is that you're missing a piece of the puzzle. And in context, you can see it over and over and over, and it is the truth that is in Christ Jesus. Christian, you have that truth. You should be using that truth, and he says, he says it. See, we shouldn't be surprised when non-Christians act like they don't know Jesus. We shouldn't be. If, if we bump into a non-Christian and they're acting like they don't know Jesus, well, well I get that. Paul just described why that happens. They don't have the truth. They, they don't know any better. They can't help it. We should love them and give them the truth graciously and lovingly. They need something else. They need Jesus. If you're If you're here today, you need Jesus. You need the truth. You need to be able to interpret all of your life based on Jesus. See, here's the deal Christians we aren't supposed to join them either we should expect the world to act like they don't have jesus but our life should be distinct should be different if you go to work and people don't know you're a christian if you go to school if you go to hang out with your friends and they'd be surprised to find out you're a christian Paul's talking to you. These words are specifically for you. Certainly they apply to all of us. But he's calling you from that place. He's saying don't let that be said of you. Don't let that be true of you. You are no longer allowed to live as a a, a Gentile, as a non-Christian. You are no longer allowed to live in the same way people who don't know Jesus live. Own it. That's your responsibility now. Having been made new, having a new name, no longer sinner, but saint. And that is the call on your life. See, it's cool to me that he doesn't just stop there. Because that's what happens, I think, in our culture most often is that we here's the problems. I can tell you, as as a pastor in a church that has people that will identify problems. This happens over and over and over. You know who's expected to come up with a solution? If you're a leader in this church, you know this to be true. You hear a lot about problems, but not always about solutions. That's not just true here, it's true everywhere. Something goes wrong at work, your boss comes to you and chews you out. What's the solution? Your, go to your boss. Hey, this just isn't going to work. What's the solution? We love to identify problems. Thankfully, Paul didn't just identify the problem and walk away or move on. He gives us the solution. Starts in verse 20. He says that's not acceptable to be that way. That is not how you learned Christ. You see, what He does when He does that is He brings everything about who we are, everything about how we act, everything about how we think, everything about what we do, everything about us. He brings it to this place that centers on our, our relationship and coming to know Jesus. You see, the, the, the Christian life should be a distinct life, but the Christian life should be a Christ-centered life also. See, here's the thing. Everything about you, everything about what you do, everything about what you think, everything about what you are, are planning on for your life, everything about your purposes and desires and, and everything about your motives and actions, all that is in you should be brought down front and center and begin to mirror the way you came to know Jesus. You did not come to know Jesus by sinning more and resisting truth, did you? You did not come to know Jesus by by going your own way and doing your own thing and pursuing satisfaction in the world around you, did you? You came to know Jesus first by the work that He did. By, By Him naming you righteous and holy. You were saved by Jesus as He covered your sin with His shed blood. You were redeemed by Him. You were saved by Him. You came to know Him and it became yours as you repented You changed your mind. That's what repent means. It's a fancy word for change your mind. You changed your mind. Changed your mind about what the truth really is. You changed your mind about the idols in your life. You changed your mind about your desires. You changed your mind about what you think is right and wrong. You changed your mind about all of that. And you changed your mind about Him and believed. That's what repentance is. And you can't have repentance of one thing without belief in another. They go hand in hand. Two sides of the same coin. You don't have a quarter if you don't have the heads and the tails, right? You don't have, you don't have your faith if you don't have your repentance and your belief. You changed your mind about the world and you trusted in Jesus. That's how you came to know Him. And the truth is, is that that is now the rest of your life. That is now the mirror of what sanctification is all about. That's now the purification process in which He leads you through. That's now the way that you become holy since you've been called holy. That's the way that you live righteous since you've been called righteous. Repenting. Changing your mind. Recognizing there are things you think that are wrong. They're dead wrong. There are things you do that are wrong. They are dead wrong. Paul says, "Stop them! Believe in Jesus. Trust in Him. That's the rest of our life." Luther, we're indebted to Martin Luther because of his part—the part he played in the Reformation of the Church. And in many ways, it's made famous. You know, Martin Luther goes one day and he nails these ninety-five theses, these ninety-five points about the Christian faith, and he nails them to the Castle Church at Wittenberg. He nails them there and makes a statement—a public. Statement that the church, the Catholic Church, had been teaching wrong, and he says we need to reform. He wasn't looking at being divisive. He was saying the church needs to change its mind. The church needs to repent. The church needs to keep believing in what's right and quit believing in what's wrong. There's things we're teaching. There's things we're doing. There's things that are happening that are wrong. He nails these 95 theses to the door, and he calls the church at large, the church leadership and the church at large to this change, to this reform. And the very first one says this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Every step along the way, every moment, our lives are not just to be distinct, Our lives are not just to be Christ-centered. Our lives are to be repentant. Paul, he calls us here to that. He says, put off the old. That's the old way of life. Put it off. I might say it. Shoot it in the head. Be done with it. Walk away. Quit kicking the dead horse. Be renewed. Be made new. And put on the new. Let's just deal with those just real quickly. It says put off the old. Because of Jesus' work in your life, because of what He has done, because He made you new, you are not the same person you used to be. He gave you a new name. I'm not saying your name. I'm not not saying like we're going to start calling one another, you know, I don't know. I'm going to start calling, instead of Matt, I'm going to start calling him Joe Bob. You know, That's not what I mean. I might just do that just because that sounds fun. What I mean is your name, He's no longer sinner. Your name is saint. Your name is holy. Your name is righteous. Your name is blessed. See that? That's what he made you. And he says with that there comes this whole new way of life. He says put off the old. Get rid of it. We can do that in two ways, I think practically. Some things we just need to stop doing. If you're lusting after women in your heart, if you're lusting after men in your heart, that's sinful. Stop it. If you're if you're cheating on your taxes, this is a good one because tax season's coming up. If you're being... The, uh, um, a liar. What's the word for a liar? If you're being deceptive in the way you handle your money, stop it. If you're in any way trying to exalt yourself, stop it. That's what he's saying. It's exactly what it means to put it off, to quit. Now here's the other part of putting off things, though. There's, there's some things that we just need to do because they're, they're really not inherently bad. We just do them with bad motives. You need to go to work. You need to earn a paycheck. You need to. It's it, it's impossible to live in this world without money. You're either going to live on your money or somebody else's money, but you're going to need money. right? Just the, the reality. We need to go to work. You and I need to work. We need to work hard. We need to be diligent. But many of us go to work to make a name for ourselves because we want to leave a legacy. Because we want to make a way. We want to we want acceptance. We want approval. We want somebody to pat us on the back and say good job. That's our main reasons for going. See, we've taken a good thing and made it a bad thing because we're doing it for a wrong reason. Paul says stop it. Quit doing that. You see, I just want to encourage you with this before we move past that. It sounds almost impossible because there are so many things we know that we do wrong. There's a process of renewal going on inside of you that He is doing, that He is working out in you that enables you to do and fulfill this very command. He says, stop it. You have the power because you are being renewed. Then He says, put on the new. uh, These are two pieces. Like the put off the old, that's one, one part of it. We can't just stop there. We have to put on the old or put on the new. We, we can't just walk away from the old and not do something in place of that. We have to replace it. So we pick right up where we left off putting things off. So I put something off and I put something on. What I put off is dishonorable to God. It's a sin. It's something that, 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 that is against him. That's in opposition to him. And it's an action. It's, it's some thought or some perception. It's something that takes away from his identity. And I return that or I replace that with something that honors Him, that makes much of Him, that, that gives Jesus, uh, that, that makes Him famous, that that reveals Him in me and, and makes the work that He's done in me obvious to those outside of me. But not everything we've done in life is inherently bad. Not, not everything is, is inherently sin- sinful. Paul says stop the things that are. Keep doing the things that aren't. And replace the things that are with things that are good. So here's one, one of the one of the biggest reasons we have uh, that, that we struggle with time, is because of the way we use it, right? Time it's the one commodity we have that we can't replace. It is not renewable. We can't get more of it. We all have the same amount: 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's the same across the board. But I hear people say over and over and over, "I just don't have time to read the Bible." I often want to ask, and I think I'm going to start doing this, did you watch TV this week? You would all say, yeah, I did. Because that's what we do, right? We don't have time because television is a higher priority than Bible reading. I didn't have time to read this book. I didn't have time to take part in studying and and, and seeking to, to grow and know more about Jesus. Did you have time to be entertained? See, we put one thing off, and it's not, not, not inherently bad that you watch television. Some of the things you watch may be inherently bad. It's not inherently bad. But you're, you're, you're replacing something that's important with something less important. Paul says stop it. Replace what doesn't edify with things that do. Replace what takes away from what God's doing in you with things that add to what God's doing in you. Put off the old. That's from the old way of life. Put on the new. That's what it's about. Let's think about working again. Working. It's a good thing. It's great for you to go to work. I think we should all go to work. Do do something productive. But go to serve. Go with the idea that you're going to be the best employee. You're going to be the the best i don't know i we could even we could even say this is outside not even outside the home necessarily i'm going to be the best husband i'm going to be the best housewife i'm going to be the best boss i'm going to be the best at what i strive to do because i want jesus to shine through me you see i don't want people looking at me as a christian saying man he's got a terrible work ethic because that takes away from jesus i don't want people looking at me saying Man, he says he's a Christian, but that dude, he doesn't talk like a Christian. That guy cusses like fire sailors. That just doesn't add up. See, I'm going to take away. I'm going to put off what's wrong. I'm going to put on what's good. I'm going to stop the old and start the new. And I'm going to keep doing I'm going to renew. I'm going to refresh those things that I should be doing. I'm going to refresh them and do them for right motives. That's the idea, but, but, but He gave us a third one. He doesn't just say put off the old. He doesn't just say put on the new. He tells us to be renewed. And this is important. It's going to take us a little bit of time. It won't take long, but, but we need to deal with it. These other two commands are active commands. They're, he gives you verbs to complete. Right? They're action words. Be put off, put off, and then He says Be a passive verb be renewed how do you be renewed it's something we can't do by ourselves it's something that we don't have power to to, to make happen be renewed well it didn't happen. be renewed i can't think it enough i can't do enough i can't make a practice of of be renewed it's a passive verb it's there's no action for me to do but there are things that I can do to enable the renewal. You see, and that's what's happening. Jesus has already saved you. He's already, He's already made you His. He's already cleansed you. He's already said you're holy. He's already said you're righteous. And He calls you to avail yourself of those things that make it a reality in your life. Reading studying His Word, it is recorded for us. We know what God wants of His people. We know what God's will is for us. We know how it is that we have relationship with God. We know who God is. We know His nature. We know His traits. We know His desires. We know what He loves and what He doesn't. We know because His Word tells us. But we have to avail ourselves of it. We live in a time where we have greater access to the Scripture than anyone else in all of history. We've got to avail ourselves of it. His Spirit lives within us. The the, the Word teaches us that. His Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, lives within us. Later, Paul's going to say, don't quench the Spirit. See, there's a reality that we don't have to submit to the influence of the God who lives in us. We don't have to listen. We can ignore. We can push off. We can go our own way. He's saying this is what renews us. We have prayer. We have worship together. We have meditation on the Gospel when you think of what Jesus did for you. It will renew you. It will change you. We have Fellowship together with the saints, the grace that we get to share one another remember last week spraying one another with the silly string the, the, the grace spraying one another with grace we get to do that and when we do it renews us it makes us new. see this renewal process is something that he calls us to be because it's something that he is happening automatically within us It's something that God is at work doing in us and now we take that renewal and put off the old. We put on the new. That's the life of the Christian. That's the new you. That's the new perspective. And all three of these are absolutely imperative. If we miss one piece of this equation, we miss it. See, if we're not being renewed, if we're not being made new constantly, consistently, we'll never know what to put off, will we? Another thing the Bible teaches us is that our hearts are deceptive. We we lie to ourselves better than we lie to other people. We can fool ourselves into believing that we are something we're not. If we don't have the renewal, how will we ever know what's right to put off and what's right to put on? We need the renewal. If we only ever put stuff off, if we only ever build this list of things, I I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. and look. I'm a good, righteous person. Jesus will accept me because I've done these things. Or I've not done these things. I've put them off. You know what that makes you? A legalist. See, I can stand here boldly calling you to obedience and not be a legalist because I'm calling you to live out of the work that Jesus Christ has done in you. The legalist says, I will get Jesus Christ's approval. I will get His acceptance by not doing these things that displease Him. There's a difference. Paul's not a legalist. He's commanding you to do this with the authority of Jesus Christ. But he's commanding you to do it out of the work that's being done in you as a response to the Gospel, not to earn the Gospel. See, if you only ever put off, then you're a legalist. But if you only ever put on, you never put off, you don't live out of that renewal that's going on inside of you, You're really just a hypocrite. You know why we're called hypocrites so much in the church today? One, because it's true. We're hypocrites. But that really is true about everybody. Nobody lives up to their own standard, right? None of us do. I'm I'm talking in the world and everywhere. It's just true of all people. We're just hypocrites. But one reason our hypocrisy stands out so starkly Because there's one thing that's generally known about the church is that our lives should be different. And what we do is we say, well, look at what I do. I read my Bible. I go to church. I'm in a community group. I serve people. I I go feed the homeless. I, I go take care of orphans. I do all these things. All the while, we're never putting a thing off. We're just as guilty of divorce. We're looking at porn. We're having affairs. We're tearing apart marriages. It's just as rampant and real in the church as it is in the world. See, we're hypocrites. We've got to have all three. Be renewed by the power of Christ in you that you may put off the old and you may put on the new. Let's pray. Father, we obviously know that we don't deserve You. We know that we can't earn this position. But we also are confident that You've given it to us in spite of that. How would You help us? Help us to stand up and walk in the way You've called us to. Help us to live in a manner that's worthy. Help us to to not live the same way the rest of the world does. Help us, Father, to be distinct but not be so divided that the world can't see the work You're doing in us. That they can't recognize the difference. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.